Back in 2008, Paul and I met. Now, I had known of Paul for a lot of years, but he and I had never met. And we met out in Scottsdale, Arizona at a conference. And we just discovered that we were like twins separated at birth. Now, I, I, I get it. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's kind of like Schwarzenegger and De, uh, DeVito. But anyway, twins separated at birth. And uh, a friendship just immediately uh, occurred. And we were just bonded. We were about the same things. And we've had the privilege of traveling literally all over the country, speaking together. And we've spoken at endless conferences and events. And then when Paul invited us to consider uh, bringing uh, a part of our congregation from Liberty Church over to here and merging and, and my becoming a, a part of the, uh, the preaching and teaching staff here, uh, it was just uh, it was a great honor. And so, you know, over the years when you, you, you teach and you preach on Resurrection Sunday, uh, you have approached it from every possible angle, at least in, in our minds. And we thought, you know, it might be really neat if we team preached a sermon. And so that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to preach the first point, then Paul's going to share the middle part of the message, and I'll be back to preach at the end. And we'll see how this works. But uh, it went very, very well in the early service, and I trust it will here too. Now, please understand, we did not have a dress code. This is not a Fairview uniform. I, I, we chose our outfits independently. I think it's because he saw a photograph of me in this, and he wanted to look like me. And I, I understand I completely understand. So anyway, uh, here we are, uh, dressed alike, but we're going to be sharing this message, and uh, I hope that God will use it in your life. I want to welcome all those online, those who may be listening later uh, by way of recording, and even our sister congregation down in Orlando, Florida. We're always uh, mindful that we are a part of an extended church family. So Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate every Sunday the resurrection of Jesus. So why make such a big deal about what most people call Easter? Why is it that today is kind of the day of days? Well, it's because everything hinges on the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, if Jesus' tomb was not empty, then our souls are. Now, that's just the way it is. In fact, Adrian Rogers, one of my great heroes in the faith, once said it like this. He said, if Jesus Christ is still in that grave, nothing matters. But if he came out of that grave, nothing else really matters. Now, I want you to think about that because that places everything into the proper perspective. The resurrection is everything. And if Jesus was in that tomb... And then somebody was able just to steal his body, and he's dead like everybody else. Then, guys, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we have no hope. We might as well live it up because tomorrow we could die. But you see, the Bible tells us that there is something very unique about the resurrection. So what is it that makes the resurrection so important? We want to suggest to you four things today. Number one, the resurrection proves that Jesus really was God. Now, you see, you can't kill God, right? So if Jesus conquered death, then he must be God. I mean, who else has been able to do that? There were only two men before Jesus who didn't die, but the only reason they didn't die, a guy by the name of Enoch and a guy named Elijah, is because God chose not to allow them to die. But Jesus conquers death. So then, if you understand that Jesus really is God, it makes all the difference in the world. Now, the Bible clearly teaches that death is the effect of sin. The Bible is abundantly clear that death came through Adam. 
Sin entered through Adam and death was the consequence. Now, not just physical death, but spiritual death. In fact, in Romans 6.23, Paul makes it abundantly clear, the wages of sin is death. And when you understand that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it puts us in a real tight place. The writer of Hebrews, most likely Paul, says it like this in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then, sadly, the judgment where we face up to our sins. This is why Hebrews chapter 2 says Jesus came and died in our place so that he could, according to Hebrews 2.15, release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That is the one enemy that we can't conquer, not on our own. But you see, if we understand that Jesus solved that issue because he was not just a man, he was God in the flesh. It's become very popular these days in the church to preach that Jesus came to teach us a better way to live, to to live an example, an exemplary life. Well, he did do that, but that's not the primary reason he came. Because even if you could live a good life, if I could live a good life, we're still sinners. And the effect of sin still hits us. Now, Jesus made it clear when he was on the earth, right before he went to the cross, he said, look, the devil himself, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Now, you and I can't say that. I can't say that the devil can't find anything in me to get his meat hooks into because there's plenty in me. There's plenty of sin in me for the devil to get a hold of. But Jesus said, there's nothing. There's nothing in me. This is why Paul said, God made Jesus who knew no sin. Notice the phrase, knew no sin. To become sin for me, for you. So then in turn, we could have the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. Hebrews puts it like this. Jesus was tempted and always just like we are, yet without sin. So understand that this establishes Jesus as divine, as deity. And this is how he could ultimately overcome death and the grave. So ultimately then the resurrection is important because it establishes the fact that Jesus really is God. And being divine, he conquered death. Listen to Hebrews 2 again, verse 14, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. He literally, literally destroyed death. Paul writes to a young preacher named Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, and Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through The good news, the gospel. How could he do that? Well, only if he's God. How could he forgive sins unless he is God? How could he overcome death if he's a sinner like us? And then in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18, Jesus put it like this. I am he who was alive, he who lives, and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades, or hell, and of death. Now that's the keeping place of both the soul and the body. So ultimately, the resurrection is critical to us because it establishes the fact that Jesus really is God. 
Now, if he's God, then we need to obey what he says. If he's God, then we can trust what he says. Now, that's what Paul is going to talk about when he tells us that ultimately Jesus said things that no one else has ever said. The resurrection is the foundation upon which all Christianity rests. The night of Jesus' birth, the archangel Gabriel appeared to those shepherds outside Bethlehem. And he said this, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day a Savior, which is Christ, the Messiah, Adonai, the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, if we only needed a good example, God could have raised up a moral man to set one for us. If we only needed a new word from heaven, God could have simply dispatched Gabriel, the messenger archangel, to come and bring it to us. But we needed justification. And as Pastor Dan said, and the Bible says, we know through experience that we have all sinned. We're all guilty. The penalty of sin is death. The sacrifice of a bullock or the sacrifice of a goat or the sacrifice of a lamb logically cannot possibly atone for the life of a man. Perhaps a perfect man if there was one other than the God-man Jesus. But let's just say, for example, that there was a man that was able to live a life of perfection, that he could perhaps offer his life, but that would only equate to the life of one other man. But if God became flesh, if God became a man, then he who is the source from which all life came could in fact atone for all of his creation. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus was not like any other prophet. He was not like any other wise man or holy man or religious man. Jesus made some outlandish claims. He claimed to be life-giving water, that is, declaring to be God. He claimed to be the bread of life, that is, frankly, declaring that he was God. He claimed to be the good shepherd. And understand the Jews knew the good shepherd from the 23rd Psalm. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the light of the world. He was Adonai. He spoke and storms dissipated. He commanded and the sea obeyed. He didn't walk around the Sea of Galilee. He walked across the Sea of Galilee because he was not subject to the laws of nature. The laws of nature were subject to him. He opened blind eyes and deaf ears. He demonstrated his authority over demons. He had authority over the angelic host. As he told Peter in Gethsemane, Peter, put your sword down. Don't you know I could call down the entire army of heaven right now. Folks, who was in charge of the army of heaven? No one other than Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He had the authority to raise the dead back to life because he is the resurrection and the life. And he claimed and demonstrated the authority to forgive sin. I understand how important that statement is. The only one that can forgive is the one who has been offended. If you offended Dan, 
and then you came and apologized to me later, that would do no good because you had not offended me. You would need to go and ask Him for forgiveness. So if our offense is against Almighty God, only Almighty God is capable of extending forgiveness to us, and Jesus did. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus demonstrated that He was God. And as Jesus approached Jerusalem for the final time at Passover, as the Lamb of God who would give His life for the sin of the world, He said clearly, as they asked for a miracle, another miracle, to prove that He was who He claimed to be. Now, I guess the hundreds of miracles that He had done to this point had not counted. But Jesus knew their hearts. He said, you are an evil and adulterous generation. You ask for a miracle, I'll give you one. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will I, the Messiah, the Son of Man, be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. But let me tell you, on day four, I'll be alive again. On day four, I'm coming out. Point number three, the resurrection separates Christianity from all of the other faiths in human history. Ladies and gentlemen, there have been many world religions founded by many different kinds of people, both men and women. All of them claim to have the ability to reach God or commune with God. But only one had the audacity to claim to be God in the flesh and then had the brazenness to claim that He would be able to prove it. He died for our sins, and as the high Sabbath approached that Passover week, they hastily took Him off the cross and wrapped His body and placed Him in a nearby garden tomb. And the Pharisees knew about His claim. They knew that the entire future rested upon them being able to pull His dead body out of the tomb on day four and show it to the entire world, and thus prove that he was a fraud and a liar. Well, they did everything they could to stop it. The forces of hell were doing everything they could to stop it. They went to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and asked for a watch of soldiers. Pilate granted them 16, a quaternarian, 16 highly trained, battle-hardened, Special forces, troops, the finest in the world, a Roman soldier. Sixteen men, four on duty, four hours at a time. Four were on active duty, the other twelve were sitting right there, resting. All sixteen men sitting around that tomb to make sure. And again, let me emphasize, they didn't have to guard the tomb forever. All they had to do was on day four, roll the stone away, bring Jesus' dead body out, show it to the crowds, throw Him in a trash heap, and Christianity would be forgotten. But the Bible declares, and we know and celebrate today, that the tomb really was empty. Now, folks, I'm going to take a little bit of a different track here because I grew up in church. I grew up being taught that the Bible was true and trusting that the Bible was true. But many in the world today scoff. They say, well, that's just the Bible. They were just followers of Jesus. They were trying to pull off a fraud. Of course they would say that the tomb was empty. But let me tell you, there are many extra-biblical historical sources that also document that fact. I'll demonstrate one. Some 100 years after the resurrection, a Christian man named Justin Martyr 
had a very famous series of debates with a Jewish man named Trypho in the city of Ephesus. And over the course of those debates, which were recorded and now in a book for all to see, Trypho had documented the theory that was being spread forth by the Jewish community at that point in time. Specifically, here is what they were saying one century after Jesus. said, a godless and lawless sect has been started by an imposter, a certain Jesus of the Galilee, whom we nailed to the cross, but whose body, after it was taken from the cross, was stolen at night from the tomb by his disciples, who now try to deceive men by affirming that he was risen from the dead and has ascended into heaven. You say, Pastor, what's the big deal? That's exactly what Matthew said in the gospel. The disciples stole his body. Yes, it does. But also, according to this extra biblical historical document dated 1900 years ago, the Jews admitted and secular history confirms that on day four, the tomb really was empty. Just like Pearl Harbor, this is a fact of history. Just like the signing of the Declaration of Independence, this is a fact of history. The garden tomb was found three days and three nights after Jesus went in, empty. And that is also a fact of history. Now, skeptics have tried to explain all this away. They've come up with some outlandish claims. One was, well, he wasn't really dead. He was just dazed when they put him in the tomb. Let me tell you, how many of you have worked in the medical field? How many of you have served as soldiers? It's not terribly difficult to discern a dead body. Especially when you're a Roman soldier and you were skilled in the art of death. And understand the accounts, not just the Bible, but there are extra biblical accounts that document what the Bible claims. He had nails placed in his hands. He was beaten with a cat of nine tails, 39 lashes, which is the maximum according to the Jewish law. What a cat of nine tails was, was a whip with nine strips of leather off of it, each one having a barb of pottery or a hook on it. A gifted executioner could wield that like an artist. The whip would wrap around the body and dig into the flesh. And then as he pulled it back, he would rip out hunks of body, literally exposing the rib cage for all to see. Many didn't survive that beating. On top of that, he was beaten with fists by Roman soldiers. Those of you that have ever been in a real fight or been in the military know that it's not like a John Wayne Western. They mocked him and rammed a crown of thorns down on his head. This could potentially kill a person if one of these barbs, like a 16-penny nail, penetrated the right spot. He was nailed to a cross for six hours. And finally, they took a spear and penetrated his side, piercing his heart. The Roman authorities officially declared him dead. Now imagine how hard it would be to try to convince someone that that body in that condition, in fact Isaiah 52 says that he was beaten like hamburger, wasn't even recognizable as a human being. That they wrapped that body placed it in a tomb, rolled a 2,000 pound stone in front of the hole. 
with 16 guards outside and that he got better, unwound himself, rolled the stone away with nobody noticing the noise of a 2,000-pound stone being rolled away, and then escaped. Is that really plausible? I'd say it takes more faith to believe that than it takes to believe in the resurrection. (laughs) Another theory was this. They lost the body. They forgot which grave they'd buried him in. Really? Jesus had been a thorn in the side of the Sanhedrin for three years. They were trying desperately to kill him. Now they'd finally succeeded, and they forgot where they put the body. Really? This is not the Keystone Cops, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling body of Israel, the official spiritual leadership of all the land. And these, weren't, these were Roman soldiers. Third theory is that the disciples stole the body. Of course, that's the one that the Bible talks about. That's the one that Trypho admitted that the Jews were spreading that story. Now, think logically about this. In the Bible, penned through the moving of the Holy Spirit, but written by these very men, they admitted their failures. How selfish and self-centered they were going back to Jerusalem. How they were more concerned about their position in the kingdom than they were about what Jesus was trying to tell them. The night of Jesus' arrest, while he was still alive in Gethsemane, they all fled. In fact, Mark gives an account that one of them ran away naked as they grabbed a hold of the nap of his neck and he ran out of his clothes. Folks, you've got to be really scared if you go anywhere naked other than the shower. Now, you're telling me that after Jesus was dead and their hopes and crushed, or dreams were crushed, that these 11 men decided to come back, 11 fishermen and tax collectors came back and overpowered 16 combat, experienced, heavily trained Roman special forces ops. That, too, is harder to believe than the resurrection. The reality is Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, folks, you may be motivated to do things for a variety of reasons. Money could motivate you. They say that the draw of sexual intimacy is a great influence. Fame can be a draw. These 11 disciples got no fame. They got infamy. They got no money, only persecution. They got no adoration of women. They were only hated and detested. And all 11 died, except for John, who was probably boiled in oil before he's dead, but died terrible, horrible, martyrs, deaths. And all they had to do to make it go away was to say, we stole the body. But none of them recanted. Because they had seen Jesus in his resurrected glory. And they knew that it was true. Romans 1, 4 tells us this. Yeshua HaMashiach Adonai, Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord Adonai. God. Who was born of David according to the flesh. His fleshly lineage through Mary, was of the seed of David. But he was declared, shown to the entire world to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection 
of the dead. You hear me say often that Christianity is not a feeling. Christianity is not an emotion. Christianity is a fact. If the tomb really is empty, then that means Jesus really is the Lord. And at that point, every one of us have a decision to make. What will you now do with this man, Jesus, whom they call Christ? So why is the resurrection so important? It proves Jesus is God. It substantiates, it authenticates all of his claims. It sets Christianity apart from all the other isms, all the other philosophies. It actually makes Christianity true. But there's one last thing we want to bring to your minds about why the resurrection is so important. That is that the resurrection answers man's most important question. Now, what is that question? Well, the oldest book in the Bible, though not first in the Bible, but the oldest book in the Bible, as far as we know, is the book of Job. And in the 14th chapter, in the 14th verse of the book of Job, written earliest of all the books, you have this vital question, this central question. If a man die, will he live again? I mean, isn't that the million dollar question? I mean, isn't that the one that we're all concerned about? I mean, we live our lives and we try to extend our lives the best that we can. And we want to live as long as we can, as healthily as we can. But in the end, we're going to die. The death rate is one for one. Two guys, as I mentioned earlier, got out of it. But that's only because God allowed them to. In fact, Jesus is the only man who actually chose to die. He said, oh, wait just a minute now. What about someone who takes their own life? Well, they're just choosing the time they're going to die. But they're still going to die. Jesus is the only one who didn't have to die. Why? Well, we've already shown you. Satan had nothing in him to get a hold of. There was no sin. He really was, as Paul just demonstrated, the Lord. In Van Buren, Arkansas, there are a number of tombstones, the particular cemetery. I go there from time to time. A number of them have grandparents' names chiseled. And I stand and I think about the wonderful life and experiences that I had with them. I can move on over and there's a tombstone with the name Gary Lynn Fisher chiseled. My own dad. Died at 45 because of rheumatic fever that he had when he was three. But at the age of 35, he came to know this Christ. And I'm going to see all those people again because every one of them knew the Lord. In fact, as I say a lot at funerals, Paul and I have had to do far more of those than we would like. I've stood beside these these graves, and I've told families of believers, hey, look, you know what we're really doing here? We're doing like the old pirates used to do. You remember the pirates' treasure map? There'd be the X, and it's the X marks the spot. That's where the treasure is. Well, every time you bury the body of a believer, you're actually putting an X on the ground where a miracle's going to take place. And one of these days, 
When the Lord returns, there's going to be a miracle right there. But the age-old question remains, if a man die, will he live again? Well, the answer is yes, for all of us. And that's something a little tough for some folks because they don't understand. They say, well, you know, Christians, they believe that they're going to live again. Well, those who are not in Christ will live forever as well. The real question is not whether or not we're going to live forever. The question is, where will we live forever? And this brings us back to the resurrection. Because ultimately, Jesus tells us, and then later the apostles tell us, that there is a way that we can know that we can be in God's kingdom forever. It's what the Bible calls being in Christ. You know... Jesus is really the dividing line in all of human history. He's the, he's the dividing line in all of, of human culture, of philosophy, of sociology, everything. Jesus is really the dividing line. He's right there in the middle of the three crosses. He's hanging between earth and heaven. I mean, everywhere you look, Jesus is right in the middle. We date our checks either before if you're really old, Jesus came, or after, right? I mean, the point is, he divides everything. And it's really pretty simple. People only fall into one of two categories. Jesus said, you're either for me, or you're against me. Now, some people will say, well, 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 no, wait, I, I would never be against Jesus. Well, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's more than just saying, oh, I love the Lord. Oh, how I love Jesus. It's do you keep his commandments? So the Bible says that there are either those who are in Adam or those who are in Christ. For as in Adam, we're all the sons and daughters of Adam. We all die. So in Christ, all shall be made alive. You hear people say, oh, we're all God's children. No, we're all Adam's children. And we've inherited Adam's sins. In 2 Corinthians 1.9, Paul says, We all have the sentence of death hanging over us. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, separation from God. But the beauty of the resurrection and the fact that that tomb that you see a picture overlaid there is empty is that if we've been united together, Paul says, in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. That's the resurrection of all believers who are in Christ. Over such the second death, that's eternal separation from God, has no power. So we either die in Christ or we die in Adam. Now we're born, all of us, in Adam. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, well, Nicodemus, you have to be born again if you go to see the kingdom. You were born in Adam. Now you've got to be in Christ. Those who die in Adam will descend into a hell where everything of God is extracted. Now think about that for a moment. God is love, no love in hell. God is peace, no peace in hell. God is joy, no joy in hell. Everything that is of God, hell is void of. This is why Jesus describes it as outer darkness, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Sometimes depicted as a pit with no bottom. There's no foundation because there's nothing to hold on to. Everything of God that matters has been extracted. That's why it's so important that we get this down. 
And then Paul in his great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, says it like this. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades or hell, where is your victory? It's gone in Christ. And that's why the resurrection is so important. Because it answers our most important question. Dr. D. James Kennedy, who pastored down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida for many years, wrote uh, um, Evangelism Explosion that we even use here to train people how to share their faith. He was a great Christian man. He's in heaven today. But I want you to listen to what he said once. He said, you can go into the caverns of the dead where the souls of those who have passed from the light of this world now remain and call the roll of the mighty. Now, we don't have time this morning to call the entire role of the so-called mighty. But listen to what he said. You could cry out, Confucius! And in a moment, you would hear the response, Here. You could cry out, Muhammad! And in just a moment, you would hear the response, Here. You could cry out, Buddha! And the response would eventually come back here but you can cry out Jesus and here's the response he is not here for he has risen as he said that is why amen amen that is why the resurrection is so important it all hinges on this If that tomb was not empty, we are. But if that tomb was empty, our hearts can be filled with the righteousness of God. I close with this verse. Colossians 3.1 If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. When you die, where will you be? In Christ or in Adam? He is not here. He is risen. The resurrection is the capstone. It all hinges on this. I'd like to ask you if you would bow your heads. If today you're not sure that you know Christ, you're not sure that you're in Christ, we can help you. There's going to be some counselors up here in just a moment. And they'd be honored to talk with you, to pray with you, how you could know for certain when you walk out of here today, if you died, you would die in Christ rather than in Adam. Come in just a moment when the invitation begins. Maybe you're a Christian, but you're not living the way you know you ought to. Well, now's the time to get it squared away. Now's the time to settle everything and get it right with God. Maybe this is the church where you ought to be and you know it and you need to join this church. Then come on. This is the invitation for you. Friend, there is room for you. Brother Paul is going to pray with us and then we're going to sing. And if you want to come, or if you're listening online, or you're listening later by recording, just bow there and say, Lord Jesus, I'm I'm a sinner. Come into my life. Save me. Make me your own. And he will do it according to his word.